on Lumpen Radio. Good morning, everybody out there in Radio Land. My name is Jamie Trecker, and you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio, and you're listening to I-94. Lumpen Radio's books and literature show. As always, I am joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Morning, Jamie. And today we are going to be focusing on a book called Tower Dog, Life Inside the Deadliest Job in America, written by a man named Doug Scott Delaney. Doug is joining us on the phone momentarily. This book is out from Soft Skull Press. Doug, are you with us? I'm here, guys. Hey, Doug. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Doug, thanks so much for joining us today. This book, uh, you, you guys, uh, through the magic of radio, obviously cannot see the cover of this book, but this is a book about men who work on cell towers and modern communications towers. Uh, and it is an unusually uh, dangerous job. And w- this book is basically uh, written by a former tower dog. Doug was up on these towers for more than 15 years. Uh, and he talks uh, throughout the entire book about the people that have uh, been killed, candidly, uh, working on these, on these towers. And Doug, I just wanted to start off, if we could, what I mean, obviously, you you worked in this field for a long time, but what inspired you to start writing a book about these experiences uh, in such a job that that frankly most people don't really know much about, but also seems you know unrelentingly brutal in many ways. Well, I appreciate that. I I didn't want to be unrelentingly brutal, but the truth is, it's an unrelentingly brutal reality out there. People just don't realize what it does take for them to get that signal and to tweet and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the bottom line is, I kind of felt that I, I, I really hate I really hate the term raise awareness. It's not my thing. It, I, it seems to be overused. But the truth is, I did want to let people know the you know the, the high price of, of high coverage. It, it does have a body count, and uh, I just really wanted these people to get a little respect more than anything else, and to throw a little light on an industry that for years and years went completely unregulated. It's only been actually regulated maybe in the last 12, 13 years. That's amazing. I mean, how could these things have been thrown up all over America without any kind of regulations or any any use for the workers? I mean, that just seems bizarre to me. How did this situation come about, Doug? Well, you think about it, any new industry, you think about oil or the transatlantic cable. Any, think about the Internet. How long did that go unrelated before people stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, we have an issue here. The bottom line is uh, these new industries pop up and, you know, the work is getting done and people are making money. And the longer they stay off the government or regulatory radar, the more profitable that industry is. As a matter of fact, the more OSHA gets involved and the more uh, these big, big carrier companies, and by carrier I mean any any cell phone provider, AT&T, Sprint, go down the list, Verizon, uh, the, more, the more light that is thrown on safety, the more uh, money it does cost. Safety is expensive. Doug, I don't want to play devil's advocate here, but one thing that <clears throat> came through the book to me also is there seems to be a kind of a romantic edge to this. You, you talk very passionately about the guys you work with and all the workers uh, who are, are making not only their living doing this, but taking an enormous amount of pride in it. There, there seems to be a kind of uh, wildcat mentality in, the, in this group of people you're talking about, and that comes off as something that's uh, almost heroic and celebrated. There is. It, well, they have to because, you know, it, it's kind of like, you know, uh, 
I, I don't know how to actually phrase it, but the truth is the men who do this and the very few women who do do this, they do take a pride in what they do. Even though they're, you know, the wages are low and it is a tough, tough job, there is a, a bit of romanticism about being on the cutting edge of something uh, that without them wouldn't work. Now, you can throw up all the towers in the world and, and you can have all the ground-based technology and a million support troops, uh, like not like in a war where you have, you know, 4,000 support troops for every field soldier. It's these people who do climb these towers that make these systems work. And when they go down, you're going to want these people, whether it's in a blizzard or uh, raining or, or a disaster area. There is a romanticism. Uh, we've been compared a lot to, you know, probably the last thing would be the drovers uh, riding cattle up, say, from Texas all the way through Kansas, up to the stockyards, Kansas City, Chicago. Well, those cows had to get there first. And it's those, that whole cowboy romantic culture that uh, I think precurses what tower guys do today. I would also argue that it it it, it had the same feel. I, this I'm a I'm a veteran, and it kind of the same feel that you know enlisted guys are. You know, in the military, we know that we're in a bad spot, and that you know that's just the way it is. And it's it's also romanticized, especially you know in our very uh, they call it the military industrial complex. I call it our rah rah culture. But uh, the other thing I want to mention too, Doug, is you were talking about you know bringing awareness but to me this is you know this is classic muckraking journalism you're you're bringing a to the forefront something that no one knew about um you know we're chicago guys we had sinclair with the jungle you know uh you know what thank you so much for saying that but continue oh no problem and you know it was funny because you know teddy roosevelt they're not entirely sure but they thought roosevelt coined the term muckraker and it was actual an insult but then roosevelt in turn, then read the jungle and then passed some, you know, very stringent regulation on the meatpacking industry, which, if you think about today, could you imagine the President of the United States reading a book? I, I can't even imagine that. <laughs> but but well, then... This, you, this president, yeah. Yeah, this president. Um, and, and, and I know I know W liked to read children's books, but they, um, you know, in this day and age, but reading a book and being like, well, we, you know... I read Tower Dog, and I really think we need to get some regulations going because these guys are dying all the time. They don't care about these guys, and I, you know, it. it in the same way, you know, I, I I compare the working class in America. You know, we're a union town, and people, most not everyone, but a lot of people in Chicago can scrap up some decent wages. But when you were talking about what these guys were making, you know, I thought you guys. Oh yeah, jeez. I, I thought you guys made a ton of money, and then what you're, you know, some of these guys are making twelve bucks an hour to risk their lives. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was like blown away. And you know, like I said, Chicago's a heavy union town, and we still got a lot of clout here. I'm a union member, but uh, you know, I, and that's you know unregulated. That also, you know, no one's going to want to unionize it because then Verizon's not going to pull down their 3.5 billion a quarter or whatever they make so yes but i i think this is a good example of muckraking you know we don't talk about it anymore everything's so like polished and pc but i mean this is like pulling out an industry pointing a finger at an industry that's killing men and women in this country no one knows about it and then not only are they killing them but they're not paying them to risk their lives and i i i commend you for that well, thank you. You know, what, who am I speaking to? Is that Jeremy? Yes. Jeremy, okay, here's the deal. You, you, you mentioned four things that I want to address in order. Okay. 
One is you mentioned the military-industrial complex, and I understand completely what that means. And that was Eisenhower who coined that phrase. Who everyone thought was an outrageous hawk, but he wasn't. He was aware of the value of war, how it feeds industry. And the bottom line is, you and your fellow veterans, when you are in the trenches, in the foxhole, you only have each other. There's that complex, that support complex, is Halliburton serving kitchens up and building tents and. It is the support group for the men in the field is is so much larger and so much more profitable than that soldier in the field, and frankly, what that soldier is faking to be in the field. Two, you mentioned Sinclair. When I first went out with this book, I told every agent I could find, this is my jungle. This is what I want to do. Even though the jungle was technically a, a more fictionalized version, it yeah. changed an industry that needed to be changed. And to be compared to that, frankly, I'm flattered. It's what I always intended, and you're the first one to even mention that fact, that this is, this is similar to the jungle, which is what I wanted. Teddy Roosevelt's a big fan of mine. I grew up in New York. I used to drive up to Sagamore Hill every chance I got and walk around his house. I was a big hero of his, especially with his muckraking and his uh, trust-busting, correct? Is that the right phrase? That's the right phrase, yeah. yeah. So, and the last thing you mentioned... Uh, oh, what was the fourth thing? You know, it totally slipped my mind. You had me on a roll. <laughs> I don't know. I was impressed that you oh, put them in order. Wages. Wages. Uh, it's incredible. Like I said in the book, every time you sit down anywhere, and we travel all over the country, everybody thinks we're making, for some reason, $37 an hour. <laughs> and it's not even close. As a matter of fact, uh, I just talked to two gentlemen who switched jobs. They got a better pay. Uh, they got a better paying job than they've been doing for seven years with one company. They're making $25 an hour. That's the top. That's the highest I've heard of, of the 70 or 80 guys I've talked to uh, making. Uh, basically, though, right now, uh, since this book does take place mostly in 2008, uh, the wages are, the starting wages are about 18, 17 bucks an hour. You can get that at 7 Eleven. You can get it at Quick Trip. Any decent convenience store is going to start people at that wage. That's amazing. Well, we actually have a recorded segment, uh, an excerpt from Tower Dog talking about some of this stuff. Uh, I do need to make a note. Some of the language in this book is adult, and of course the FCC doesn't allow us to do that. So certain uh, words have been changed. It is not the author doing it. It is us to comply with FCC regulations. But this is an excerpt from Doug Delaney's Tower Dog. Listen along, folks. Hayseed cornpone jerks pulled up the job site not four, but five hours late and none the wiser. It was an overgrown gravel lot strewn with old plastic bags and 40 dogs and used condoms and bloody needles in the center of an abandoned warehousing district. I did not know if we were in Bayonne, but it sure smelled like it. Plenty of daylight left, said Darren, and we unlocked the site gate to the compound, dropped the back door of the trailer, and went to work. While Darren and Super Mario would roll out the spools of coax and begin the assembly of the new antennas, we would be flying, hopefully before dark. Ricky Boots and I broke out our climbing gear. Who's gonna rig? said Darren. I will, I said, and immediately regretted saying it. Ricky scanned the tower with knowing eyes, patted me on the shoulder, and said, Better you than me. What's the rad center? I asked. Darren grabbed the site folder off the dashboard and leafed through the pages. Ah, red center. Looks like 225 feet. 
His first climb in a long time would be hell, and I wanted to get it out of the way. Looking up at the 300-footer, I knew I would have to rig at least 40 feet above the rad center, so I would be going up all the way to the top. That's like doing about 300 pull-ups carrying my own 182 pounds, my 35-pound harness, a 4-pound rope block, a 10-pound 24-inch adjustable wrench, and a rope, which would increase in weight every foot I climbed until the last 100 feet of the tower would weigh about 100 pounds. I also pouched a Motorola hand radio, two warm bottles of Coca-Cola, my phone, and my digital camera. Essentially, I would be hauling almost two of me. I would not be the first man to repeat the phrase, the hardest part of this job is getting to work, because it was. The rest of the tools and material and equipment would come up attached to the load liner and canvas nose bags once I rigged the tower and sent the ground end of the rope, weighted by the adjustable, down to Super Mario. He would then either dog it off or spool it onto the cat head, the truck hitch mounted capstan winch. But that would be a while because this was a dirty tower and that it was loaded with carriers. Between 80 and 260 feet, there were no less than six antenna arrays on this tower representing Sprint, Verizon, AT&T, Nextel, and God knows who else. And it was not just cellular hookups. There were three foot to 10 foot diameter microwave dishes and high performance dishes, grid panels and UHF and two-way radio, omni-whips and bipoles and two old fiberglass feed horns that resembled cornucopias. Only they were 20 feet around, so spacious you could live in one. There were beacons and side lights and what I think was an air raid siren, and all of it, all of it, was bleached white with crusted pigeon crap. This beast was as dirty as the lot it was built on. <coughs> and that was an excerpt from Doug Delaney's Tower Dog. Yeah, that was New Jersey. That was a hell of a sight. You know, I remembered what I was going to say. You mentioned Union. And like I said, I'm from New York. You're from Chicago. Union towns. Uh, I did mention at one point in the book that these guys uh, have to do trades, seven or eight different trades that for every one of them, there's a union for. Yeah. We were in New Jersey working non-union. We're doing union jobs, seven or eight union-type jobs, whether it's welding, electrical, whatever, down the line. The problem is, like you mentioned, this union does not want to be, I mean, this union, this, this, this industry does not want to be unionized in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and it would be very hard to unionize these guys because they're scattered all over the country. They're not localized, as you would have local three electricians in New York or local this. Right. They're pretty much gypsies traversing the country. Yeah, just to give listeners an idea of, of the disparity in wages that Doug is talking about, you think about an apprentice, which, you know, a starter, a beginner, a novice in any trade here, electrician, welding, ironman, whatever, they're, they're, they're walking in making 20, 25 bucks an hour. And in the, yes. in the book, Doug talks about 9 to $12 an hour being the average, which is pretty yeah, That much. was back when the book was written, which, right. like I said, well, not when it was written, it, when, when the book actually, the majority of the book takes place in 2008. And you think of the danger, is that, right. I mean, I mean, if it was $200 an hour, it's still not worth your life. And, you know, uh, in the last five weeks, we've lost four men in the industry, three in Florida and one in Arkansas. That's, you know, one every 10 days. Yeah, I got your article this morning. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I sent that in. I I should have sent that in uh, a few weeks ago. But, yeah, there were three in Florida and one in Arkansas. God love them. One of the things... uh, And then all of a sudden, you'll see things pop up on the Internet saying, will you help us pay for this funeral? We can't afford it. You see that all uh, the time. One of the things I wanted to mention, Doug, is that um, this... 
I'm, I'm glad you talked about not being comfortable with the, the term raising awareness. I don't think that's just what this book is about. Um, we did, Jeremy and I talked about this being jungle-like, um, but it's, I don't, for listeners who haven't read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, it's about the, the conditions of meatpackers in Chicago, and it's, it reads like a novel. You're, you're basically. It is a novel. Okay. Yeah. It, the jungle is not is it is fictionalized account. Although Sinclair did he he was working in the industry. He was in the packing industry. He was in the slaughterhouses, but he it is a fictionalized account. And you know, one of the things just I want to I'll let Mike finish, but one of the things about muckraking too is which is Doug's books a little different is they it mostly points out the negative. Um and one of the things that Doug's book points out is, you know, the guy's party and having a good time. Um, and the good and bad that goes with that. There's some very amusing anecdotes, especially about people from Florida, which I'll get into later. But um, <laughs> yes. um, but I did want to just clarify, you know, the jungle is fiction. Sinclair was in the, you know, he was in the slaughterhouses. He was in the meatpacking you know, industry. I, I think it was a hybrid kind of fiction, almost, almost from pre-Capote, because what he did was, yes, he fictionalized it with the romance and everything, but his... All his accounts of the meatpacking were totally factual, and that is you absolutely know, like nonfiction fiction. So, autobiographical fiction. The uh, it's, it's a fantastic book. Well, the, the point I want to make is that this this doesn't just read as you know industrial journalism. This is this is a literary book to to me, and I'm sure right. listeners can tell um, just from listening to you that you're you're a really intelligent guy. But um, the way the book is set up. In format, first of all, every chapter is preceded by um, it goes in a chronological timeline. There's a there's an announcement of a death in the industry, current time from 2014 to 2016, before every chapter, and then it gets into the 2008 storyline. Um, and it, what I mean by a literary quality with that is, I, I think what you were intending to do there is. Um, it's they're just uh, they're they're press releases from uh, the wireless estimator or local papers, and <clears throat> what they list is the name of the person who was identified as deceased, and they talk about the company they worked for. In another section of the book, you talk about um, the layers of insulation between the carriers and the workers, and how so. The deaths are never really truly linked in public consciousness to um, to Verizon or Sprint or whatever, and and I guess there's just there's a subtlety to what you were doing. There's um, there was a there was a depth to to the writing that isn't all on the surface. There there was a lot of talk about the American landscape and and the history of the United States and how it related to what you were seeing and what you were working on, and. I, I had two questions in, in relation to that. One, um, you seem to be pretty aware that convenience is king in the U.S. or in modern times, um, and that this book isn't going to change that. Since it's been released, have you has it been disappointing or, or heartening to the, the response that you've seen to, to your work? amazing to me is the people who read the book, who are outside the industry, love it, because you hear the same thing. I never knew. How did I not know about this? 
And the one I hear the most is, I'll never look at a cell phone tower the same way again. And Do you believe say, My God, my God, I see them everywhere. I didn't, have, I didn't even realize how many cell phone towers are around my house. Uh, where I'm sitting now, I can see seven or eight. And the funny part is, I had to leave my house and drive seven miles to get a signal. Huh. <laughs> Talk to you guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting in a parking lot. Look at the towers. Uh, no, that's the first response I love. And I guess the people I wanted to make aware get fully aware. They get it. It's, oh, my God, I don't believe it. The industry people don't like it at all because, oh, I've had tougher jobs like this. Oh, I make more than that. And the industry has tended to be a little more critical. That, but, that uh, was the other question I was going to ask you. Did any of the, yeah. the, the Jimmys, the... Uh the uh, the Sarges, did any of those guys you were working with read the book? Oh, actually, yes. And the, Crack the guys baby. I work Crack with, baby. The guys I work with love it. They get it. Okay. They get it. Uh, they're good. They're good with it. Uh, uh, I didn't want to go. When we did the Dateline thing, that's when I caught hell. But for the book, I did not catch hell. Oh, like, we should like let that. listeners know about that. That's another thread running through the story is that, that Doug is... He's been working in this industry on and off since 97. When we meet up with him in the book in 2007, 2008, he's trying to pitch <coughs> this thing to NBC. NBC Dateline, yeah. yeah. Right. And you, yeah, it's you, a complicated. You don't even have to go there if you want. But the <laughs> bottom line is, they made a Dateline special, and I got filleted. I got gutted. Uh, yeah, we got. Well, that's, frankly, that's all in the book. If you want that whole convoluted, insane story, <laughs> it's complicated. We, well, I got, I got murdered, man. Well, what, I got, boy. Let's let's talk about that for a second because you, one of the things when you when you enter the book, you're you're trying to sell basically uh, a real not a reality TV show, but I guess it is. It's either it's either a reality yeah, yeah, series yeah. or. Oh, you're right. So why why did you, uh, as you put it, catch hell for this? What happened? What happened was, like I said, I know we're short on time, and but what happened was. We thought we'd make a good work reality show because it ain't, like I said in the beginning of the book, it's not, it ain't loggers or ice road truckers or fishermen. They're not even close to the death rate the tower workers are. And they jumped all over it and they, they shot up a Dateline special to kind of test the water. It was, the Dateline special was a hybrid. It wasn't a news program. It was more of a slice of life. Mm-hmm. Well, we sold that. We, we sold that as a reality show before it even aired. They had sold it off the trailers for Datelines that week of August 2008. And the next morning after it aired, they had five cable network channels trying to buy the show as a reality show. The same morning, the industry came down on us like the rat of God and thunder. <laughs> so Basically like you'll never work in this town again, right? Pretty much. And even though we went into the field with a half a million dollars worth of equipment and, and a crew of 10 from NBC Peacock Productions and out of 30 Rock, and within one week, we were shut down and everybody went home. Hmm. That so, might not have anything to do with the fact that Comcast owns NBC? <laughs> I don't, you know what? The, you know, those are, the, those are the halls of power that I've never been able to penetrate, but I'm sure they, they stuck it to me good. <clears throat> Doug, one of the things I also wanted to bring up during the book that I I thought of, there seems to be a real undercurrent of exhaustion in the book. That comes through very clearly. And, 
you know, working working literature is something we discuss quite a lot on, on this show. It's a genre that we happen to be quite fond of. But I wondered if you could talk a little about that, because one of the things that I think you try to give your, your crew and your coworkers is a sense of dignity and a sense of agency in, an, in, a, in a field that they don't really have a lot of agency. Uh, but one of the things that I keep I keep coming back to is the when I was reading your book, everybody just seems so completely whipped in this in this book all the time. Oh my God. And I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit for our listeners, because I don't think people really have an understanding of the, the physical and mental demands that you're talking about in this book. Yeah, it's, that's, how, that's how people die. Uh, more than anything else, it's fatigue. And when you are fatigue, you neglect your training. And the bottom line is, it's an exhausting physical job. And like I tell people, whether you're 18 years old or you're 50, 55, and you're climbing towers, you are you are doing, if you weigh 150 pounds, you're carrying 300 pounds up the tower. You're doing 300-pound pull-ups 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 times before you get to work. And it's a physically demanding job. It's a mentally demanding job because one little mistake, you're not two feet off the ground. Uh, if you drop something, you can kill somebody. If you don't attach something correctly, you could kill somebody. The three men that recently died in in Florida, and by all accounts, these were really well-trained, brilliant technical guys. They built the tower they were working on, and it was over 2,000 feet. You have to think about this. That is taller than the Empire State Building by many, many feet, okay? Now, these guys who are so experienced and so who were so experienced uh, are dead. Because one of them or two of them didn't pay attention to something, they made one mistake, and that's all you get. You don't get three strikes in this business, you get one. We're tired because not only are you working 60, 70 hours a week, we've done 90, 100 hour a week, you're traveling between locations. Uh, sometimes you work from, you know, you're up at dawn or whatever, you get to work, you're grabbing food out of convenience stores, uh, you do the job all day, you get on the ground, you drive to another town, could be an hour away, could be a state away. There is enormous fatigue, and, and, and that to me uh, is possibly one of the top causes of the fatalities, is that people are just exhausted, and you hear it all the time from guys. Well, how did that happen? Well, God, I'm tired, I wasn't thinking. You hear that. You know, it's not I was tired, I wasn't thinking. I dropped something off the forklift. You know, right. it's I'm tired. I wasn't thinking there's a guy dead. Right. So, yeah, it's 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 a brutally hard job. It's no 40 hour week. The 40 hour week is a joke. <laughs> uh, it doesn't exist because Britt wants it done. AT&T wants it done. Verizon, God forbid there's an outage. If there's an outage in your area at three in the morning, they're losing money every second. For every second that tower is down, it's ka-ching, ka-ching down the hole. And we'll wake up guys 3 or 4 in the morning, send them out to the and they're going to work. It doesn't matter what they did the night before. It doesn't matter if they got in at 1 o'clock. You, know, you need your phone. That's what it's about. Wow. Well, we do have to take a quick commercial break here. We're going to be back in about two minutes, and we're going to hear another excerpt from Tower Dog. And we're speaking with the author, Doug Delaney. We'll be right back. You are listening to I-94 on WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpin' Radio. <laughs>
Einstein wore the same brown suit every day so he wouldn't have to think about what he was going to wear and free his mind for other pursuits. So did Bo. Same blocked and sweat-stained cowboy hat, the same faded blue t-shirt, the same 501s, and the same armadillo cockroach killers. Where's Gunn? I shouted down to him. Vic and him went shopping, Bo said. We had not had a company-wide debriefing since the Reinhold guy, and not only were we due, but Sarge had invited many a big shot from Geodyne Tech, warning us the same morning during muster, and also advising we'd be on our best behavior or take on the champ. So Gunn gets the milk run, I said, resentful of the fact that Gunn and Vic with a D would spend the day buying groceries and liquor and propane and sporks while I actually had to do work. Luck of the draw, Bo said. I didn't really mind Gunn catching a little light duty, but Vic with a D had become the default errand boy. He was still supposed to be a functioning groundhog. He had skills, skills we needed on site. His grounding and support work was incomparable. But not since my return to the field had I seen him do anything but go get this and go get that. During these errands, he would stop at four or five places and do his personal housekeeping, eating sit-down meals and chewing up the day while the rest of us were busting hump and eating cold burgers and drinking warm soda. Okay, so be it. Someone had to do it, I just wish it were me. Off-site, Vic was a pleasure to be around, cooking for everyone, making his vicaritas by the blender, playing dominoes and blasting classic rock. But in my mind, we had enough new meat bags to run errands. We needed experienced men doing what they were paid to do. I let it go until one job when Darren and I were hanging off the steel at 210 feet for so long we lost circulation in our legs, while Vic with a D sat in the trailer all day reading his newspaper and coloring his hard hat with magic markers. There was plenty to do on the ground, but he just didn't do it. And Darren and I had to cover his ass when he came down. We were there until midnight, at which time I woke up Jimmy Tanner and told him to pull me or Vic off the crew or I was going home. I wasn't going around anyone's back, I had gone through channels. I had barked at Vic to get off his ass and do something, which Darren should have done, and I had pleaded with Darren to do what he should have done. Nothing was done. Next stop, the Godfather. Jimmy listened to me rant for a moment. He sighed beneath the weight of another complaint, sat down, cleaned his glasses. Vic came to us, he said. He's pushing 60, and he's all tore down. Jimmy was almost apologetic. He can't do the work he used to do, but we're all he's got. We're trying to keep him busy. And welcome back. You are listening to I-94 here on WLPN Chicago 105.5 FM, and we are speaking with Doug Delaney, the author of the book Tower Dog on Soft Skull Press, Life Inside the Deadliest Job in America, and that was an excerpt from Tower Dog that you just heard as we came back out of the break. I want to talk about authenticity, um, Doug, and one of the things that we talk about on this show a lot is, and, and things that drive me, me personally crazy, um, I'm known as the malcontent of the show. For but good when, reason. <laughs> <laughs> but when you get a, you know, you get an MFA candidate writing about guys working in factories or a combat narrative, um, things like that, for me, and I, I take the words of the great Nelson Algren, the way that you you know, you've learned to write is by reading and also living. And that's totally paraphrased and I totally slaughtered it, but that's exactly what he said. And um, one of the, I mean, that's exactly a, <laughs> my version said. of what he said. <laughs> I just did a Fox News. You yeah, know, fake so, news over here. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, but anyway, so what I'm getting to here is, you know, this is a, a very authentic record. Um, Mike and I, it, we and, and Jamie, you know, we're all fans of Rivet Head too. Have you ever read Rivet Head, Doug? 
You know, boy, I hate to tell you, I have not. I, if you get a chance, pick it up. It's it's it takes place in Flint, Michigan, um, and it's about a guy who works on the assembly line, and he talks about a lot of the same things that you talk about about safety, about monotony, about the characters that are involved uh, in in characters. I mean, you know, true characters. You know, um, I, I was thinking of uh, Sean Dog and Frogger. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, and like you can't, I mean, you could write a Sean Dog and Frogger, but like, you know, those guys, you know, that's something you got to live and you got to experience and you don't experience that in the, in the classroom, you know, you experience that out on the streets. And, um, you know, we talk about this on the show, Mike and I are both in recovery. So, you know, w- w- we talk to people in that, f- in that area. And we also, you know, I've been in the military. I've also worked in a factory. I mean, we've done all this stuff and, you know, my whole worldview comes from all these things. Right. And, you know, I have family that are, I'm from Michigan, so is Mike, actually. But, you know, a lot of people don't know Michigan is a hillbilly state. You know, I mean, when you get outside of, well, even near Detroit, you know, Henry down Ford, here. Henry Ford, when he went down to the South to recruit, he went to not only the African-American communities, but he went to the Appalachian, Appalachian yeah. yeah, so, I mean, it's, you know, you've we've, so you've got, an African American migration, and then you have a hillbilly migration, and then you remove he, all the industry, and you know. And he paid him. He paid him five bucks a day, which was unheard of. Yeah, yeah, no, and the, you know he wanted everyone to drive a Ford, and but yeah. it, it it caused a lot of problems. First of all, racial tension. Then they left. You know, I mean, the big three pulled out of Detroit. You know, oh. there's no public transportation there. But but what I'm getting at here is I'm kind of putting this all into perspective, but, you know, we develop a worldview by living and by doing jobs like this. Um, you know, all three of us have worked terrible jobs in our lives. And and I'm not saying this is a terrible job. It sounds like a really hard job, and it's a, it's a respectable job. But, you know, I, I don't think you could write this book unless you were up on that tower. And, and one of the I, – I don't remember exactly where it is. is, you know, you're talking about being up there where it's so cold – you have to have your gloves off to work, but your hands are gone. You can't even feel them, and you're doing it by, like, yeah. muscle memory almost, you know. You yeah. can't write that unless you've lived it, in my opinion. Well, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's amazing. When you mentioned Sean Dog and Fogger, and it's <laughs> absolutely true. Like you, like, you know, you, when you hear that phrase, you can't make this stuff up, you can't. Because you can't foresee this insanity. And... I, I remember this so vividly because I sat, I, I sat there in that parking lot in New Jersey thinking, is this really happening? <laughs> yes, it is. And what do you do? You just accept it and go, well, that's, that's what we do. This is our life. This is how we And nobody seems surprised. Nobody ever goes, oh, my God, did that really happen? No, they go, oh, boy, another nuthead from Florida. <laughs> 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 you, don't, if you just take it in stride. And, I mean, there is... Uh, I, I use, I really use stories that I was involved in, but there's a thousand others I wasn't involved in that, sure. that, yeah. that make Sean Dog and Father look like choir boys. Yeah. <laughs> just, just to give listeners some context, Sean, Sean Dog and Frogger are two uh, green beans who joined the crew from, from South oh, Florida, I think. And the yeah. episode that Doug's talking about is, is, is <laughs> the one dubbed Frogger playing Frogger running across a, a, a busy, busy highway to go to the liquor store. To get 40 yeah. ounces, To get 40 right? ounces. Yeah. Three separate times, he, he eventually yeah. gets and what he, he was saw, asking and this for. Was, this was the truth. It, 
at one of these crossings, which is Route 17 in northern Jersey, which is my <laughs> you know. I'm so familiar with that. One of, and at one point, he glimpsed to the south, and he saw the New York City skyline, and he figured he could walk there. It was 24 miles away. <laughs> and Father decided he would walk there because he wanted to score something other than beer. And he figured that New York would be a great place to get it. Well, he didn't make it a mile and a half down the road. He got hit by a bakery truck. That's the story, Frogger. <laughs> so you know what he did? Here's the beauty of it. He'd been, in, he'd been with us less than 24 hours. And uh, the boss, Sarge, he went to the hospital, made sure he was okay, gave him a bus ticket, and fired him. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of these jobs like that. I mean, I... I don't think people really realize just how much weirdness goes on in kind of the blue-collar world. Some of this stuff reminded me a lot of when I was working many, many years ago in a painting crew in New York, uh, upstate New York. And we had guys that would uh, pour turpentine in their beer at 630 in the morning and and drink it. You know, all all kinds of crazy stuff that I tell people about now, and they they don't believe me at all. Is there something about these kind of jobs that just makes people go crazy, Doug? There absolutely is, and it's not, you know, and I, I, I would love to say we're the only lunatics in the business. We're not any field road workers. Uh, I've reached, you know, I've been, a lot of this story takes place in Nashville, and they're tearing up Nashville. That town is a boom, non-union boom town. It is incredible. It's, every road is tore up. They've got crews from all over the country in Nashville, road crews, power crews, electrical crews, borers, directional borers, fiber layers. They're all in hotels. They're all nuts. They're all the drugs. Frankly, the drugs and alcohol in any blue collar industry is almost uncontrollable, and it's it's what it is. These guys are going to drink. They're going to do their drugs. You can't stop it. Uh, it's what they do to unwind. Uh, like I said, you can't. I'm not saying these are stupid men, but they are largely uneducated, and they they will they will find what they need to get through the day. Now. Does that affect their performance? Absolutely. But out of all the deaths in my book, and there's a lot of them, not one could be traced to use of drugs on a tower or use of alcohol on a tower. Whether a guy was hung over, they don't know. If a guy smoked pot a week before and he had THC in his system, okay. But that does not affect his job on a tower. Uh, so it goes to show you, you can't say that drugs are the killer in this industry. They are not. Drugs seem to be almost a tool for a lot of the industry. Coping mechanism. The yeah, I won't name the company, but <sighs> I was with the company whenever they had to take, because, you know, I have enough vices without drugs, and if they needed somebody to take just a mandatory P-test to the insurance company, I went. Because they knew there might be a little out beer in there, but there was no drugs in there. So I was a designated cup filler. And now they do it so randomly. They avoid that now. They can randomly check anybody. But it's not in their, it's not in their best interest to do that because I did a survey, an informal survey, out of a crew of men, there were 10 of us, and two of us could pass the test on any given day. On any given day, these eight guys could never pass the test. And that, to me, is pretty much might be the, the, uh, the paradigm for the industry, or any blue-collar industry, for that matter. It is not solely, in any way, you know, a, a tower thing. Well, I was being arch, you know, a little bit before when I said, you know, is, is this 
is this job driving people crazy? But I mean, I, I actually now want to get to this point. Are these jobs where people are being worked to death? And are these jobs that are so low paid and so uh, poorly remunerated? When you, when you talk about an industry that's awash in drugs and alcohol, that sounds like a symptom of a sickness that the that these jobs are causing. These, these American jobs, these particularly American jobs, by the way, they're not like this in other countries, are, are causing. Is is this a symptom of, of a sickness that we have we have created? And and I think you know we've got two guys in the studio, of course, who are in recovery and can speak very much more to this than I can. But uh, this this seems to be a real problem that people aren't talking about, even beyond the the horror the horror facts that you know in your book, you know, 40, 40 people die. You know what I mean? Which is horrible enough. We're talking about a whole undiagnosed part of what seems to be a serious mental illness uh, that the, these jobs are causing. I think it's environmental in a lot of ways. If you want to really go big picture, and this is my personal opinion, uh, we have, back in when I was growing up, my father worked for a union elevator company, Houghton Elevator, New York City. My father was one of the men who built the World Trade Center. And my dad, at the time, say mid-70s, was making $8 an hour. He had a house, two cars, and supported a family of six. It was doable. There was a middle class. I think with the advent, let's say about 1980-ish, 88, and ever since then... Ronald the Reagan. Class, <coughs> yeah, well, you know where I'm going. The middle <laughs> class has been eviscerated. The middle class has been destroyed. Find me one man with a decent pay who can raise, who can have a house, two cars, and raise a family. It's impossible. His wife's working. They're paying child support. The economy will dictate the pressure on any working man. And, you know, we've seen this happen before. I mean, you go back to Maitland or you go back to, uh, uh, you know, the 1920s and, and, and that, that unionizing era. That it, it seems to me the working class has lost its teeth for the upper low percentage of the company. It's a fact. It is a fact. The trickle-down theory is an illusion at Disneyland. There is no trickle-down. There's yeah. never been a trickle-down. If you think, well, here's the idea... Uh, and right now with these new tax cuts, and I'm not a tax expert, but the new tax cuts say if you make less than $50,000 a year, your taxes are going up. How yeah, you get hammered. <laughs> right. And you want to talk about putting, okay, if your tendency, if the, if the pressure on you is like, you know, coal or a diamond to produce something with, with such pressure and, and no way you take away hope. And they, they don't really take away hope from the working people. The people that aren't working and are trying to work can look at a situation and say, why should I take this job if I can make more not work? It's, it's a real problem. I don't have the answer. But if it leads to more abuse of substance, I agree 100%. Many a time, I have had more than one beer because I was like, damn, how am I going to get through this month? This is absurd. You know, so I can see all of us teetering on that edge with power guys. If you add in, if you add in the 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 the, the, the thing that plus every day you go to work, you could die, might pump up the pressure a little bit. Doug, Doug, I have a a, a two prong question about the the culture of the industry. Um, you mentioned your father. He there were there were parts of the book that he he. He loomed in the background to me, yeah. um, and the way you described him, he was—he uh, did a heck of a lot in his life, and he didn't—he didn't talk too much about it, and that's just the way it was. Nope. That's yep. the way he was. That was his breed. Um, do you still feel conflicted about um, being in that mold, but 
you know, still having this urge to write and tell all. Um, because it seems like that's also very much part of the culture. You work hard, you play hard, and you don't talk about it unless, you know, you're bragging with the buddies. And then the yeah. the, the other question is, the culture is, is, is really male-dominated, as I'm sure people can tell. Um, rough housing, boozing, partying hard, sometimes womenizing. Fighting. Fighting. Sounds um, like the military. There's there's an introduction of of uh, a female crew leader near the end of the book. I wanted to see if you could talk about her. Nikki. Yeah. Nikki. All right, let's go to the first place. Okay. Um, when you talk about tell-all, when I wrote this book, I used real names, real companies, everything. Okay? And uh, I had no problem doing it. The publisher had no problem doing it. But the president of the company I was writing about asked me as a favor because she's the one who also got murdered when the Dateline thing came out to the tune of almost a million dollars. Said, you got to publish this book. I love this book. Could you just change our names? So I changed some of the names. Probably 90% of the names were changed in order to uh, not embarrass somebody. You know, Uh, I use real names when people didn't do anything objectionable in my mind. So I have... If I had my way, that book would have been published with all the real names, especially names like General Dynamics, Sprint, AT&T, mm-hmm. Verizon. They are in there, but I only really mention them in second-party documents that have been in the New York Post or the Washington Times or on television. You know, So there is no way they could come at me and say, well, you can't mention AT&T. Well, hell, it was your tally he died on, and that was the seventh this year. How can AT&T not be involved in this? Well, they're not, because the layers of insulation say... AT&T hires General Dynamics. General Dynamics hires the Vinnie Box Construction Company. They hire a subcontractor, and that subcontractor man dies. No connection whatsoever to AT&T. Second question. I forgot. Give it to me. Nikki. <laughs> Nikki, <laughs> Nikki Rawlings. Oh, Nikki. God love Nikki. This girl. God love her. And of all things, she's from Gadsden, Alabama, which is where we have some current problems. Uh, Nikki was the only female crew letter I ever met. She was adorable, about five foot one, very pretty, and she was tough as nails. I don't know. I think she got into the business because an old boyfriend of hers brought her into it, and she found out she could do this. And she'd run a crew of, of, of misfits, like we all do. She was tough, and, and, and she was, she, I think she's still doing it. And God love her. She was. She would. She would not take crap from anybody. But she wasn't what you expected. When you hear about there's a woman cool leader, you're thinking of the female version of Sarge, and it's not. This was a when she wasn't working. You you would never. You would think, oh, she's an executive at the radio station, or she's you know she's a hostess at the restaurant. You never think she was a power worker. But it was amazing. Well, that made it know, tough for her too, right? Yeah. It did. It did. She took a lot of heat, and she, still, you know, she, and it does, that that stands for her, her guts and her grit to stick in it. But it was amazing because the first thing, the Dateline sold the show that the, his, the first thing the History Channel wanted, Nikki, get me her. Didn't matter. She wasn't doing the most work or the hardest work or the most interesting work. They wanted her because they wanted that quote unquote that word they used. They wanted that sizzle. Okay. And boy, she had it. Good old Sizzle. Yep. We're, we're getting short on time. We got another reading. But can you just tell me how Crack Baby got his nickname? Because I don't remember it being uh, mentioned in the book. It wasn't Crack. <laughs> crack Baby. God love him. That was it. He was a, he was a Cajun. And uh, 
Yeah, the most beautiful patois I've ever heard. He just sounded it. He had low blood sugar. And if, if he didn't eat so many candy, uh, candy bars oh, a day, right, yeah. he'd literally pass out. <laughs> he would pass out in his belt and hang there. So we just started calling him crack baby because he needed his crack. It was a very, very innocuous thing. It wasn't, I don't think the, the kid ever did any crack. <laughs> oh, I, I, I remember the story now. I remember you telling the, in the book when he did run out of sugar, I guess. He was swinging yeah. there in the wind, and that that's just bananas. Yeah, yep. We only have a couple minutes left. We're going to close with uh, we're going to give you the last word, Doug, as well, because we've got a, a final reading before we go into our outro. But wanted to, to wrap it up with a bow. Is there anything you'd like to, to leave our, our listeners with that we haven't we haven't covered about this about this industry and about what the message you're trying to get across? You know, first I'd like to say that you guys have been great. I've done a lot of these, and you guys have by far have been the most the most. Uh, uh, Oh, see, writers can never find words when they need them. <laughs> you, you, you've been the most informed, and I just, I just love the way you came at this because, like, I've done some TV stuff at some little TV stations, and it's always like a sideshow crazy kind of thing. And I, I really do appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to talk to you guys, and, and uh, I thank you for the opportunity as well. The one thing, excuse me? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I thought someone asked me. One thing I just want to say to everybody, when you're driving, look at them little blinking lights, okay? And just remember, like like I said, in this month, the last two, we're losing a guy every 10 days. There was a time we were losing guys every six days. Uh, since uh, records, we've lost well almost 150 men. Uh, they have wives. They have families. They have kids. Uh so you can text and you can make a phone call. Uh, it's a hell of a convenience. It, 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 it's, there's, a, there's a blood price on the cell phone, just like there was a, a blood price on oil, on cattle, on meat. It, we're just the next thing. There'll be another one. I don't know what it'll be. There'll be another industry that pops up. Maybe it's out in space. I have no idea. But from our times since... The early 80s till now, it's it's cell phone tower workers and what they do. That's, That's all i got to say, boys. Thanks so amazing. much, Doug. Thanks, Thanks so Doug. We've been chatting pleasure. with uh, Doug Delaney, the author of Tower Dog, Life Inside the Deadliest Job in America from Soft Skulls Press. That book is out now. And we're going to close with a final reading before we go to our outro. Doug, thanks so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care, fellas. Take care, guys. I do not expect the carriers to be saints any more than they should expect the dogs to be saints. Henry Ford was a rabid anti-Semite. William Levitt would not allow realtors to sell homes to blacks or browns or yellows. Vanderbilt is credited with killing thousands of coolies during the construction of the Union and Central Pacific Railroads, but most historians will put the number at around 130. Still, that is quite an accomplishment because considering about 12,000 workers built that railroad, one in every 92.3 of them died doing it, making it hands down the deadliest job of their day. 60 men out of 10,000 workers died building the World Trade Center, averaging one in 166.6 tradesmen. Tower worker fatalities since January of 2003 averaged one dead dog per 65 workers. I do not expect the carriers to be saints, but I do expect them to peel back a few layers of insulation when a worker dies rather than what they do which is immediately attempt to find fault in the climber or the subcontractor or the contractor or the general contractor and cover their asses all the way home. 
then they might order a stand down or issue a boilerplate press release expounding how the carrier has always been a staunch proponent of safety in the industry, we, 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 all the way home. Worker safety has always been a hallmark of AT&T. Though AT&T does not handle wireless tower construction itself, we strongly support the work of OSHA and the National Association of Tower Erectors, who together launched their Wireless Tower Worker Safety Initiative in 2007, resulting in a dramatic improvement in worker safety. The stand-downs usually last 24 hours and consist of your supervisor, Sarge or Jimmy or Scotty, rounding up the crew and saying, please don't do what these asses did and make sure to fill out your JSAs. It's Nancy Reagan saying, just say no. It is always too little too late, but it looks good to whatever press stands to cover the incident. The dramatic improvement in worker safety perhaps is not that all dramatic considering that in the four and a half years before the initiative, there were 57 fatalities, and in the nine and a half years since the initiative, there were 73. That's an improvement, yes, but nothing for any industry to be even remotely smug about. Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday at 10 a.m. Central. This episode featured the book Tower Dog by Doug Delaney from Soft Skull Press. Additional music from this show from the Lumpin' and International Anthem Archives. This episode originally aired on November 19, 2017. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit EYE94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. This program was produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker in 2017.